Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. We have a terrific topic. Dr. Dale Rollins is on the road again. He travels to Breckenridge in Stevens County to talk about food plots for wildlife and seed. And his guest is Darcy Turner of Turner Seed. Let's go to Dale now. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate the opportunity to be with our listeners today, and I have a special guest. As you said, I am in location. I am on location in Breckenridge, Texas, uh, at Turner Seed Company, and you're going to enjoy the visit we have with Darcy Turner of Turner Seed Company. You know, I'll start off by saying that uh, Stevens County, 40 years ago, was probably the 10x ring on the quail hunter's destination for the Rolling Plains. It was as good as it got. Uh, Darcy was a uh, former, well, he's he's a quail hunter, but I'll say a former quail hunter now. We'll get into that in just a minute. Ask him to talk just a little bit about the quail situation here in Stevens County. But again, our guest is Darcy Turner. He's the uh, head of Turner Seed Company. Uh, welcome, Darcy. And let's start off by uh, maybe asking us to asking you to give your your credentials as far as the the food plot business. Okay. Well, I. Uh... Went to Texas A&M University, and I graduated in 1978, and I graduated with a degree in agronomy, and Texas A&M and their infinite wisdom would not let me have a double major, but I minored, if there was such a thing as minoring at A&M, in uh, rain science. And so all my electives were taken in rain science because I have a great interest in that, but since I declared agronomy, they tried to keep me in soil. And I kept leaning over to plants because plants are my love of my life. And uh, probably when I'm dying, I'll be like an old uh, vegetable farmer. I'll be out there playing with plants because that's the thing I love to do is to play with plants. So I got my degree in 78. I came home December 78. My dad had already started a small seed business. We'd been harvesting Klein grass since 1973. We started off with a brush machine that you pull behind a pickup, and we started off on the Quincy Corbett, the ranch out there by uh, Possum Kingdom Lake, sweeping. From there, we went to combines, direct cutting, and from there, we went to swathing and to the technology that we use today. So we, my dad had uh, dozers at that time, and he did soil conservation work. And so he did a lot of rain seedings back in the 60s and 70s and in the early 80s of land. So it kind of worked hand in hand. And my dad was one of those guys that really loved to play with plants like I do. So we kind of worked our way into it. We started out with a building that was 30 by 40. And we did all our work there. And we just slowly, after I got out of college, did more production work, did more harvesting, did more cleaning Till we got to where we are today, where it's a 12-month-a-year business with about 30 employees. And so it's it's grown into a monster in my lifetime. And I have two children, uh, Luke, who's 34, who's there at the seed company now. And he's a salesman, and he's my uh, techie because he can do all the technical stuff that us old people can't do. And then I have Nathan, 
who's at Texas Tech at this point, getting his PhD in plant breeding. And for an old man to see your son go into your love, because I had to get out and go to work because I didn't have any money in 1978. And so he's going to get to fulfill a dream of mine that is to do production agriculture research. And that's not in corn or wheat or maybe a little wheat, but that's in wallflowers and grasses and stuff that most people could care less about. But that's what I love to do. So that's kind of my background. Uh, I have a daughter who is 17. So I have three kids from three different generations and when you're 64 and you got a daughter that's fixing to graduate, you kind of feel old. And next year I can go on Social Security, they say, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to work till I die. <laughs> well, I just went on Social Security, and it ain't always cracked up to me, uh, if you ask me. I understand that. But but uh, this, this business is the love of my life. Uh, I can tell you that every day I learn something. Uh, everybody teaches me something, and... I don't think I'll ever master it when I die, but I think that's what makes it so much fun because there's always something different to work upon. So this is a very fun business. It's a very hard business. It takes a lot of capital overlay. It takes a lot of employees, and it takes a lot of technology. So it's the best of all worlds, and it's the worst of all worlds. And, of course, Mother Nature this year is not cooperating, and so it's dry. And so I do a, I do a lot of dry land production, and I do a lot of irrigated production. So... We're at the mercy of Mother Nature, just like the farmers and ranchers are. And when it doesn't rain, I mean, we suffer also. So, And there's a lot of frustration out there in the quail world <clears throat> for several reasons. One, because uh, quail are, are uh, in the doldrums and they have been for the last couple of years. And a lot of people are saying, what's going on and why? And again, we've been in this La Nina uh, climate situation and scheduled to be and hopefully getting a little bit of improvement later on this summer. But... As quail people, as students of quail, as I call them, we are all a little bit of farmers at heart. Everybody, you know, we want to dink with this and, and try that. And so the food plots are, if you asked 100 potential quail managers, what are you doing for quail? Half of them would say we're planting this or planting that. And uh, we can talk about the merits of that at some point in time. Food plots are not magical by any means, but they can be a, a great thing for hunting and for concentrating quail, and we'll get into a little bit of that. So we're going to talk with Darcy today about food plots, and specifically for quail, we may spill over just a little bit for doves and for deer. But Darcy, I'd ask you, I mean, you've got a booming business here. It looks to me like I, I saw a lot more buildings than I've seen in the past when I was over here, and of your total revenue or your total amount of volume or whatever, where do wildlife fit into that overall package? How much of the pie have, are they for Turner Seed Company? Well, Turner Seed sells two different seasons of food plots. Our biggest food plot season is actually the fall. The fall deer mixes is probably our biggest business because it's the easiest because you're using grains and sort and wheats and rice and triticales and vetches and turnips and during that time of year this country here is so hot in the summertime that we have learned through food plots this is crazy situation that i've learned as i've got older that in the last 15 to 20 years here in stevens county we can grow a cool season crop a lot easier than we can grow a warm season now we've been in el nino 
And the fact of it is we, we, we have been getting marginal rains for the last 10 to 15 years and probably even out to Quail Ranch. Worse out there. In the summers. And so my business is kind of changing in the fact that more and more people are planting food plots September, October, November. And a lot of that's for deer. But the tr- thing of it is a, a, a food plot for deer also has advantages for quail. And most people don't realize when they walk in in April and they're ready to plant a, a plot that a quail definitely needs seed. But a quail also needs a lot of insects in the summertime. And a lot of these food plots that are planted in September, October, November, for deer specifically, will sit there and grow through past the season and give loafing cover and give insect areas that actually are green and actually produce more of the things that even a quail indirectly uses. Nearly all of our wheat plots and and, and uh, food plots in the fall have some advantage to quail in the summer. And a lot of people overlook that. The purist wants to come in April 15th, the average last freeze here, and plant a quail food plot. And that's good, but I would suggest to people that if they're really going to supplement feed their wildlife, they should look at a year-round program starting in the fall that will help their deer, but will go through and tie on to the summer food crops. But let's be real honest. A summer food plot is supplemental at best, and there are years it doesn't rain enough, and it's really discouraging. But the law of averages on food plots says that if you can keep that ground in something for your wildlife nine or ten months out of the year versus two or three or four, you're actually doing a better job. And so what I try to tell hunters who will listen, and a lot do and a lot don't, you need to, if you're going to go to the expense of planning for your wildlife, you just don't need to do three or four months a year. You need to have a year-round program. And even at the quail, uh, the quail experiment station, y'all do the same thing. Y'all plant cool seasons and warm seasons because you realize, like I realize, that we're not going out there exclusively to make a place to shoot a quail or shoot a deer or shoot whatever you're shooting or whatever you're hunting, but we're trying to improve the total ecological system of the place. All right, uh, and we're going to get into more of that and talk specifically uh, towards the end of the podcast about our use of wheat and hairy vetch, which I think has been a good system for us. Uh, Before we delve on into the food plots, Darcy, again, you used to quail hunt quite a bit over here in Stevens County. Kind of give us your opinion of uh, what's going on over the last 40 years over here. Well, when I got out of college in 78 and was single, I had a group of friends. We were all Aggies. And we we started in September going to wheat fields and hunting dove. And then we would take our fishing pole with us because a lot I remember a lot of November's that it was 100 degrees the day that quail season opened. So we'd go fishing and wait till it cooled down and then go quail hunting. So we always tried to bridge everything together. Well, it wasn't uncommon in those days for the three or four of us to go out and shoot a limit apiece and actually have to stop after two or three hours 
because we'd limited out and <clears throat> we were conservationists and we didn't really want to just go out there and shoot 50 or 60. I mean, a lot, I know a lot of people don't, but we followed the laws because we wanted to come back next week or the next and have birds there because I had dogs, all my friends had dogs and we trained the dogs. And I even had a friend who did guided hunts and he would come by and his dogs would be sore from running so much. And he'd bar my dogs to take these hunters out for guided hunts. It was big business back then and quail leases lease for about half the price of deer leases. And if you got a guided hunt back then there in the eighties, you know, my friend could make a hundred dollars a day taking a couple of guys from Dallas Fort Worth out for hunting. That was good money for us back then. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, money has gone a lot cheaper. So we hunted, we fished, we used the, the land year round. And, you know, you wouldn't go out when it was 10 below zero. But the thing of it is we enjoyed being in the land. And I guess that's why I'm in the seat business because I enjoy not more than anything else, just going out and driving and seeing what's going on. I haven't shot a deer in 20 years, but I see a, a 50 to 100 of them a year. But I just enjoy watching them as I get older. And the sad thing about quail here is uh, when the quail started declining, I had a Brit, at that, a pup at that time that I was training, and I never had enough quail to train the dog. And the dog died not being a good hunter because I couldn't, the last two or three years I hunted, it was nearly futile because I'd go out and shoot two or three. And you just don't work a dog in on two or three shots. Mm -hmm. And so to the day, my son is a big duck hunter. So I have a female chocolate lab, which I flew all the way over to South Carolina to get. And he's got a male. And we go duck hunting because it's, a it's something that we have plenty of here. And the sad thing is we had to adapt because of lack of quail. And, uh, but the thing is, I at least get to get out and shoot a gun now. Yeah. Well, as, as you know, your business and my business, we're working to reverse that decline and hopefully, uh, be able to provide similar opportunities to what you and I grew up with for your sons and your grandsons. And that's our mission there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Range. I remember, uh, oh, it's probably been 15 years or so ago, maybe 20, when you came over to uh, San Angelo to speak to the Native Plant Society of Texas, uh, again, plant-loving people. And you started out with a quiz and saying, uh, y'all tell me, I'm going to say here are some traits that are desirable. Perennial, produces a seed or mast for wildlife, and uh, easily uh, established. And so we had to come up, as the audience come up with a candidate species that was going to win the prize, and they got points for various traits. I won the prize that night. I think it was... Uh, all expense trade paid weekend in Merkel or something like that. <laughs> but uh, my nominee was mesquite. Yep. And uh, because mesquite does all those things, but we're talking about things from an agronomic standpoint, again, that we can use in a, in a, in a food management system as you mm -hmm. elaborated upon. So let's get to some of the specifics. If I ask you, again, relative to quail now, what are some of the, the most common uh, species or varieties? And I'll, I'll ask you to start off with the sorghums. Okay. Sorghum is a plant that I just love to hate. Uh, it's very drought resistant. It, always, it makes great cover, loafing cover for the quail. Even on bad years, it will get two, three, four foot tall, depending on the variety. I'm talking to grain sorghum or a forage sorghum. 
And yet we have learned here that most of the sorghums, the early season sorghums are 80 days to 90 till maturity. So what ends up happening is we've still put sorghums into the, 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 the quail mixes. It's first reason it's in there is not for always the grain but for on the for the cover because i've learned over my lifetime that the cover may be more important in some instances than the seed grain sorghum in stevens county will make a decent grain crop about one in two or three years and so we realize the the shortcomings of it but I also realize, and most people don't look at this, but I also realize that the quail, and I, you know the exact terminology and I probably don't, a quail is a major insect eater in the summertime. And so if I've got something green out there that attracts insects, then I'm ahead of the game already because, number one, most food plots should be protected from grazing or they're not going to work. And number two, you've got something out there protected. It's kind of like putting up a neon sign that says free beer because the insects are going to come. So even if we kind of fail some years on seed production, we are actually adding a benefit out there that most people don't see. And that is the fact that we are putting up that sign that says come eat this and that would be the insects. And I know a lot of times when I used to quail hunt, I never could figure out why in the dead of winter, quail's crawl would have a bunch of green grass in it. Well, they're looking for protein just mm -hmm. like everything else is. And so if the insects are dead and you got something green, you got something to bring the animals in. And I mean, that's simplifying it a way bunch. But the thing of it is, you got to remember there are choice foods. Grain sorghum would be a choice food when it makes. And the, the legumes are choice foods. But then we have to have that food for the quail in, in December, January, and February. I mean, you look at the cold snap we just went through. you got to have something green out there to keep them alive in those terrible months. And so a lot of people, they think, well, I'm going to hunt quail in November. So if I feed them in August, they got all they want. But the thing is, that quail's got to survive. And the sad thing about the quail is they're on the bottom of the food chain. Everything gets preference before them. They mm -hmm. kind of get the bottom. And, you know, in that 70s and 80s when Dale and I were big quail hunters, when we had quail, it was easy because the food chain had plenty. But we've had feral hogs or wild hogs move in. We've had fire ants move in. We've had an increasing coyotes. Everything has worked against the poor quail the last 30, 20, 30 years, just terribly bad. And of those species you mentioned, again, our uh, issues with growing Milo at the research ranch, now that's about a 23-inch rainfall zone. You're probably about a 28, 30 yeah, over here 20. in Stevens County. But, yeah, we always find, or typically, not always, typically find ourselves one three-inch rain short in August. And so we're looking good going in, our hopes get high, and then uh, reality sets in in August. Right. And we typically don't do much except maybe on the wet side of the terrace and so forth. But I love Milo. And quail love Milo. I tell people it's cocaine for quail. Right. And so uh, if we can grow it. So let's talk about uh, a couple of the varieties uh, that you recommend. And I'm, I'm always asking you about one that 
growing up as a kid was called high gear, but that's not really its actual name. So talk to me about the white Milo or what we commonly call high gear. We actually pronounce it high gear and it's not spelled like it looks, but I still raise high gear and high gear is an open pollinated, which means it's not crossed, white seeded, which means it's a softer seed. And in nature, there's always a trade-off. When you get to the hybrid varieties of grain sorghum, they're bred for the farmer to make the most poundage. But high gear, like I said, has been around forever. It will never make as much forage as the hybrids. But we've learned through the, through the generations that high gear and red top, both open pollinated type sorghums, different heads, have higher digestibility in the seed and the plant makes less but what it's producing is better now i'm not going to throw stones at, at, at hybrids because they have a place in production agriculture but we like to use high gear for quail for deer if you've ever watched a deer walk down through a high gear field and eat the heads out of the high gear. It is something they really like. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, high gear is the most drought tolerant of all the sorghums we got. And it is the most useful because even if it doesn't make a very big head, everything will use it, number one, because they love it. And number two, the forage that it's making is soft and palatable. And it's just good. It's not going to make as much, but there's that trade-off you get between open pollinated and hybrids in the sorghum lines. And so as I get older, I put more and more natural stuff in there and less and less of the hybrid. Now, if you're raising hay, you got a trade-off with high gear. But if you're raising deer and you're raising quail and you're wanting good loafing cover for them, good insect deal and palatability, it's just better. Let's talk about a couple of others. You mentioned red top, and I, I think it's red top cane is right. the, the early sumacs. Another okay, name. early sumac. And again, back in the '60s when they used to shock a lot of feed, raise or bundles as I knew them in, up in Oklahoma, that red top cane was pretty popular. Is it has it fallen from grace, or is it still a pretty good option? Let's put it this way: uh, I have about four semi loads of red top this year. None of the major producers will produce it anymore because it doesn't make the seed production. And I've had to go in and get my own growers of it because it's nearly a lost plant because everybody that uses it for hay wants more production. The trade-off with that is it's better quality. So there's always a trade-off to everything. Okay, another one that I know we've tried and a little bit and was pretty impressed with it uh, when we had rain that was... Um uh, the shallow sorghum or the, there's Egyptian another name. Wheat. Egyptian wheat, yeah. yeah. Uh, is that just a very minor, where, where do you rank it in your, your mixtures and so forth? Egyptian wheat on rainfall years will grow from 8 to 12 to 15 foot tall. It was actually called shallow sorghum. It was brought over from Africa by the slaves. They brought it over to feed their chickens. And it's one that's I forget who brought it back in the 70s. And we still sell it. It's very specialized. We use it for borders more than anything else because even if it doesn't get the rainfall, it'll still get six, eight foot tall. And we have a lot of these people that are buying smaller tracts of land east of us here. And they're wanting to do away with road hunting 
and wanting to plant something out there that will give their wildlife value number first and it give them cover number two. And I can tell you the first year I ever planted Egyptian wheat, so we're going to call it, it got 16 foot tall and it took us five days to cut 10 acres because <laughs> it was so, so massive and it was planted in 40 inch rows. And it was, it was real funny. It was, it was up there right on the line to the north side of the road. There was pheasant hunting and to the south side where it was planted. There was none. And the game warden told me, he says, don't ever plant that on this side of the road again. He said, I sat here for a month and a half during pheasant season because they ran like 500 pheasants out okay. of that thing. So for cover, it's fantastic. So, yes. Yeah, I would have liked to have had quite a bit of that uh, three weeks ago during that St. Valentine's Day snowstorm because, like you said, it, it grows up and then it falls over, makes great travel lanes, especially in the more open country like we're at uh, at the uh, research range. last one I'm going to ask you about in the sorghum family, I guess, is sorghum album. Sorghum alum is a cross between Johnson grass and it is a biannual and it's one that for years we used in drain seedings. The trouble is after two or three years it disappears. Being a biannual it's usually a two-year crop. It has a lot of advantages but the problem with it is if it volunteers back everybody thinks it's Johnson grass and nobody wants Johnson grass. Uh, it still has its place but that's one of those old-timer plants that uh, I used to sell eight or ten semi-loads and I may sell a semi-load a year now because it's just not used much anymore but, and it's cursed because it's kin to Johnson grass. Well, as a quail guy, I ain't mad at Johnson grass. Uh, <laughs> no. People ask me because I, I'll ask people, have you ever seen a year too dry that you didn't grow Johnson grass? No, I've never seen that. Well, you got to think about your very worst case scenarios. And right. so we use sorghum alum uh, and, and like it uh, in our disc strips. Right. And again, basically to provide travel lanes across some fairly open country. And it, it's relatively inexpensive. And I, I swear every seed comes up yes. of the stuff. And I, I've heard it. I believe I'm correct in saying that at the end of that second year, if you'll pull a chisel plow down through there or whatever, you can kind of keep it going in perpetuity, can't you? Yes, because it's a, such a heavy reseeder. Uh, I've cut Johnson grass for years, and sorghum island will make a times and a half as much. It's a heavy seed producer. The seed is heavy. If you manage it right, you probably could keep it for six or eight, ten years like that until you get a year where there's just no seed at all and you get a complete drought. But you don't have to plant it every year. You can just lightly disc it and it comes back because of all the seed. Yes. I know Danny Long, who was a colleague of mine down in Mills County, his county agent and a quail hunter down there for years, he, he planted and evaluated various uh, plants. But his conclusion was at the end of it that if you got to grow something or whatever, your sorghum album is a good bet. Yes. Let's move to the millets pretty quickly and talk about uh, what the opportunities are for the a couple of species of millets. Uh, in the 80s, German millet became real popular, especially east of Breckenridge, because it makes so much seed. But we've learned the hard way that German millet is not as drought-resistant as most grain sorghums. And, and a little seed goes a long way, and if it gets the moisture, it'll germ on a rock. I mean, the germ on, on German millet is 99 plus. So in areas where you have moisture, it's a great plant. It's about 90 to 100 days to maturity. In most years, if it gets any moisture, it'll set some sort of seed. The knock I have on German millet is its drought tolerance. It, there is brown top millet, and there's also... Uh, uh, 
some uh, some other millets that are used in the southeast. But I'm going to tell you here out in West Texas, if you don't use brown top and German, German being number one, it's just not going to do very good. And those have pretty short growing seasons, don't they, or 60, maturation dates? 60 to 80 days for German, uh, I mean for brown top, and uh, German's got the longest, yes. Okay. And so if you're planting it for dove, your, your, your brown top is too short a season. Okay, and there's real quickly, there's a couple of other crops that occasionally, not so much here in West Texas, but um, uh, I'm having a blank here. I've grown a lot down around Uvalde. Sesame. Anybody trying sesame up in this part of the world? Yes and no. Uh, sesame, the people who raise commercial sesame have learned that, and I can give you the technical way, but the, the common sense way is this. It, it is one you can plant too deep without even trying. And it's fickle on getting germination. If you don't believe that, go by Haskell, Texas, where they raise sesame and watch the skips in the land. And even though it's a sandy land up there, sesame has one major problem. It's got to be planted perfectly, and it's got to get germed. Once it's germed, it's drought-resistant as all get out. But the trouble with sesame is I have seen too many people plant it and have crop failures because they get it too deep. And the seed is really small and it's really fickle about getting rain at the right time. So sesame is something like Uvalde. Yeah, great. The average guy who farms, who has, and this is my typical uh, quail customer. We'll talk about this anyway. He has a tractor. He probably has a plow. And sometimes he may have a drill. A lot of times he has a tractor, a plow, and a broadcaster. Now that's my average customer. And so you take sesame and give it to that guy, the broadcaster, he's just pissing in the wind, excuse the French, but he, it's just too hard. So we try to make our mixes where they're easier to get up with the guy who's just broadcasting because this guy works in Dallas, Fort Worth, wherever, Houston, and he doesn't want to spend the kind of money it takes to be a true farmer because farm equipment's expensive now, very expensive because I've got it. And so we set up our mixes to where there may be a little of it in there, but it's not going to be enough if it bombs out on you. We want the stuff that germs and hits the ground and runs. And so we, I have, we've toyed with these mixes for years, and we still keep toying with them just because of the fact my average guy is not a farmer. He's a weekend warrior, and I understand that he makes a living doing something else. And so I want to make it just as easy as I can for him where he can have success if it gets rain. Right. And that's a great segue for our next segment, which is agronomic considerations. And let's start off with talking about soil texture. And I'm just, I mean, soil textures are variable, but let's say that the primary soil types we'd have here in the rolling plains would be a clay loam or maybe a sandy loam kind of a texture. Uh, are there any, any, like if I have a sandy loam, is there anything I need to particularly stay away from or something that's really targeted for a clay loam or, or is it just a shotgun approach? Normally, unless you're in the straight sands, you can plant any of these mixes. When you get to the blow sands, like the sugar sands and the sands where you get the shin oaks in them, going out towards your ranches, right. and there's areas that have shin oaks in it that are just, you can get buried in the sand out there. That's a special consideration because there's no bottom in the soil. Any soil that has texture, a sandy loam to a straight clay, a Montmorella nut type clay, Houston Clay Loam Series, this stuff works pretty good in. When we get to the straight sands, we have to look at it differently. 
I'll tell you one way we have to look at it differently, and that's if you disturb a, a knobscot sandy soil, you're going to get grass burrs. And that's one of the that's one of the greatest constraints that we have to do as far as disking for forb production or planting food plots. So have you found a secret recipe to get us around the grass burrs? Yes and no. <laughs> I will tell you that uh, we use, and it's old chemical, we use post-plant, that is after we plant, like on grain sorghums, and it's still used today and still labeled, because I can talk about it, because it's one of the few it's labeled for. But I have a lot of hunters in the, the Brownwood to San Angelo area that plant grain sorghums for their birds, and they'll go in and use uh, atrazine post-plant. Now, atrazine is, makes a germination barrier in the soil. It's a germination inhibitor. And I had one guy call me here about three or four years ago, and he was all upset. And he says, well, I, I use atrazine, and he said, I still got weeds. And I said, okay, let me ask you how he did it. Well, he went out there and put his atrazine down first, and then he planted. And everywhere he planted, he had weeds. You have to plant your sorghum-type crop first and then spray it with atrazine. So atrazine is probably the, the best chemical for grass burrs, for it takes about a quart per acre, and it, and, it, and it really works, and it's labeled for sorghum. And this guy was planting sorghum, but no one had told him that you were supposed to plant it first and then spray it because he didn't understand the, the germination barrier that that, that that chemical does. So are, are you applying that then uh, after the sorghum is up two to four inches or just right after you plant? or what? Right after you plant. Right after you plant. Hmm. Okay. Uh and I'm sure there's a lot of other herbicide kinds of questions that we could ask. We don't have time for those today, but y'all always need to be uh, checking that before you put this chemical down or whatever. Number one, make sure it's labeled, and number two, to make sure it's effective and it's not going to wow. not going to shoot you in the foot, kind of thing. Right. Let's talk about uh, broadcasting versus drilled site preparation, and you kind of alluded to that already. The way you really ought to farm, and the way that most of us on the weekend farm. Well, so, when I put in a, a field of production it's plowed it's dragged a, gray, a drill runs over it everything i have depth bands on my drill my drill you know my drill was bought 15 years ago and it cost twenty eight thousand dollars it's you know it's 15 foot so it's of course it plants grass seeds today that same drill is forty five fifty thousand dollars you know they're not cheap drills are but the thing of it is we want to be able to take the guy that's going out there on the weekend and he's plowing 10 or 15 acres and he doesn't have a drill, and we want him to have success because that's the base of our customers. You don't have the farming equipment I have. You don't have the money set up for it, and you, and really you don't have to as long as you follow a few guidelines. Someone asked me, what's the greatest farming tool that you've ever used for people who broadcast? And I tell them without question it's the chain link fence, and they all look at me like I'm Lulu. What we do with our farmers who do not have a, plan a planter, as I tell them to put a two by four on the front and back edge of the of chain link fence, whatever you can drag 10, 15, 20 foot, and then put a chain around that board. And then after you broadcast your seed, drag that chain link fence across it. And they look at me like they're crazy. They say, what are you doing? I said, well, number one, I'm trying to get the, the, the seed embedded enough that the birds don't eat it. And number two, I'm trying to get it in the right germination depth. 
and those little old those little old uh, deals on a chain link fence will sit there and ripple. And if you make both edges straight, and this is the cheapest farming tool you can have, by the way. And I've had five or 600 different people say, man, that really works. And they said, the birds don't eat it all up. Because you throw it on top of the ground and leave it on top of the ground, it's harder to get it to germ, number one. And number two, it needs to be imbibed in the soil just a mm -hmm. little bit, not mm -hmm. a lot. So that's one of our most least expensive farming tools. And, and a lot of people have forgot that, but it works really well. And as I recall, I think I heard you say that proper seeding depth is about seven times the diameter of the seed. Seven is that times correct? the diameter of the seed, the diameter, not the length, the diameter of the seed. That's not very deep. Right. Yeah. So it would be very easy with, with your traditional equipment to plant that too deep if yes. you had moisture. Yes. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on beyond that and talk about, again, one – when we're playing food plots for quail, we're thinking about three possible aspects. That'd be, does it produce seeds? Does it produce insects? Does it produce cover? Or do we have a home run hitter that does all three? So if I said, uh, and again, we've talked about some of the species and so forth, but if you wanted that uh, utility infielder, what would be some of the candidates you'd be thinking about? Well, first off, I'm going to start off with your cool season crops and say wheat will grow 10 or 15 bushels or hairy vetch, the crops like you use out at your place, cheaper as a, it's compared to some of the perennials. But the thing of it is they grow wheat all the way through the Texas panhandle. We raise hairy vetch. It does real well on your, your ranch out there. Uh, let's don't get too complicated about wanting to have my pie and eat it too. Perennials are harder to grow. Perennials take time to establish, and perennials have to be managed more. So if you want to get out quick and easy, you look at the basics. Don't get too crazy. <laughs> okay. Okay. And again, uh, the wheat and the hairy vetch, number one, the, you know, if you just allow that wheat to uh, head out and so forth, you're not grazing it out, uh, you're going to have sunflowers coming up in that. You're going to have caution, some other things that are good weeds for quail if you will there's really no better dove plot mixture than wheat and sunflowers for west texas in my opinion mm -mm. and that hairy vetch since we planted it back when we had good quail years 15 16 we'd find quail out there during the quail season 200 yards from the nearest cover out there in that hairy vetch they like that hairy vetch seed so again some some options there and again opportunity for y'all to come out and see what we're doing at the research ranch if you'd like to see those in person Let's talk about a couple of special considerations. And since we're talking about hairy vetch as a legume, talk about some of the special concerns you got to have when planting legumes. Uh, the number one concern with the legume is, is every creature known to mankind eats it. Cattle love it. Deer love it. Everything. Hogs love it. Mm -hmm. Everything loves a legume because it's higher protein and it, it, it is higher up on the food chain than most crops are because you takes less to do more with. So any legume, i.e. hairy vetch, any of them, will give you a little more when it's good than a non-legume. So legumes, have all, the trouble with legumes is we have so few of them that fit the bill of hairy vetch. And hairy vetch has been around since I've been in agriculture. And they're coming up with newer varieties all the time, but we just sell hairy vetch. I mean, we don't, we haven't found a variety yet that supersedes one another. So we're actually taking farming in 2020 and going back to the 1960s. <laughs> Let's, uh, where I was going with that special consideration, they do have to be inoculated at least the first time around, right? The first time around, once you grow a crop of hairy vetch, 
and the rhizome bacterium that you put on it will cost you about six or seven dollars for a hundred pounds of seed it's not terribly expensive but what you need to do is hairy vetch's legume and it and it makes nodules under the ground that fixes nitrogen which helps your soil by the way but the first time you introduce that hairy vetch out there you need to put the inoculant on on the seed with it so that it can start that procedure. Once you've raised vegetables here a couple of years, it's already in the soil. Yeah. So it's easy. You don't have to put inoculant on your soils no, anymore. anymore. No. And so, so what's the, the recipe, uh, the technique for getting that inoculant on the seed? The first well, the old time. timers always said take sugar water or milk or Coke and put it in a, uh, and, it, and this is going back to our farming practices, and put it in a cement mixer and roll it around and then pour it out and let it dry for about a day and then go plant it. That's the that's the easy way. There's a lot of companies I want to warn you about this that pre-inoculate seed, and you've got to be very careful about pre-inoculated seed because it's a living organism. It's a rhizome bacterium, and it only has X amount of shelf life. I will not pre-inoculate anything to this day till I find something that'll last longer because heat kills inoculated bacterium. Okay. Now, there's a couple... Uh special legumes that I, I'm always romantic about, and a lot of people are, and that's Illinois bundle flower, which is a perennial, and then uh, kind of its annual counterpart, partridge peas. So talk to me a little bit about those two plants. If there is a legume that should be planted in protected areas for perennial, west of Breckenridge, i.e. Albany, even out to your area, it's Illinois bundle flower. Once established, it's super drought resistant, it fixes nitrogen well, and it's very persistent in staying there. And if you go up on top of the Albany Hills up there to, to Mr. Jones's place, they planted it all over the place, and to my knowledge, it's still there. It's one of the few legumes that I like to see in pastures if it's got some protection. And if you spread it out enough, it'll survive. If you put it in one or one or two-acre plot, they're going to grub it out. Yeah, it is subject to grazing by livestock and deer. Yes. We've used it successfully, or initially successfully at least, in what we call spreader dams, where we've harvested water off the road and created a divot and throw some uh, Illinois bundle flower out there. And it, it, Ours lasted five years and it just kind of petered out after that. But again, we've been through, through several dry years. You can't harvest runoff if you don't have any rain. So I, I guess maybe that's part of that. Um, as a rule, Darcy, if we said we're going to plant food plot, for quail. Can you give us a cost per acre estimate? Are we talking about $50 an acre or $250 an acre? Kind of where are we talking about? Uh, fall, you're looking at 35 to 40 and spring, you're probably in the same boat to do it right. And uh, one thing I want to, to recommend to your people is, is you cannot plant a one acre food plot and carry your, your animal capacity. And I know there's a magic formula out there, but I've always said in my common sense deal that 5 to 10% of the land needs to be used to make it work properly. And that's just my figure. You probably have a better figure than I do. Well, my colleague for many years, Billy Higginbotham, over in East Texas, always recommended 3 to 5%. Right. But, uh, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's a critical mass that you've got to exceed because right. if, if you're too small, like I am in my little Ponderosa and Oklahoma, there I can never grow enough that uh, either the deer or the pigs aren't going to get in there and probably cause me right. cause me problems. 
so I want to ask you, and kind of winding down here, is there anything else that we've missed? Any other frequently asked questions? Any other super good recipes or super bad experiences that you could talk about? Uh, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it generically because I don't want to step on any toes. When you go to the hunting channels today, you see advertisements, advertisements from Minnesota and North Carolina and they're selling this super buck plant. And that's all I want to say because I don't want to step on any of these people that sell this toes. There is no plan out there that I've ever seen that solves all your problems. It's not going to. And if it's grown in Minnesota, the heat's going to burn it up in Texas. And if it's grown in North Carolina, and I'm just using these two states as an example, it's used to 60 inches of rainfall. Those plants are not going to be climatically adapted to this region to survive. Like I said, I don't want to get in brands or nothing because I can get sued. But the thing is, you got to be careful about when something seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Right. Right, exactly. And a lot of, uh, I hope you've appreciated a lot of Darcy's experience and his uh, his acumen on, on quail. I mean, he's the go-to guy that I have when I have questions. He's the one that I call to say, well, what about this? And, and I know you and I have had a lot of discussions over the years. Are there any plants out there, and I'm going to list one of them, Illinois, I'm a ball of, ha. American basket flower. Okay. That I think is a lovely plant, and we've discussed this before. It's a great seeper dish for quail. It's a great pollinator species. Mm -hmm. What is our hope for anything new on the horizon? I planted about seven acres of American basket flower two years ago. I had a kid hand harvest it. We had a year here, which we collected seed right across the road there. And I learned, and I knew it had dormancy issues, and so I thought in my feeble little mind that I'd go in there and scarify it. But what I didn't realize about the seed till I really got inspecting it, that the seed is woody and not very strong. And so physical scarification of that seed won't work. Now, I'm my son is working on a PhD in plant breeding. We think we can do some different techniques to break it. But American basket flower by nature is highly dormant seed, and when you test it, it's got 2% germ and 90% wow. dormant. And so what we've got to figure out, and this is our next generation at the seed company, when my middle son comes back and we start working on this, we've got to figure out how to break dormancy in natives better. All native plants have some form of dormancy. In American basket flower, if you'll watch it, it's just like lemon mint, and showy primrose and a lot of other plants out there that you see one year and you may not see two or three years, but on the years where you get the rain right, it's prolific. And then the next year, you may not see it. Last year, we I bet I didn't see a quarter of acre of American basket flower over my, all my places. Mm. The year before, I had it everywhere. And we actually hand harvested about 15 pounds of seed. That's time consuming. So we could plant it. But I made a mistake of not understanding how the seed grows because no one has done any research on it. So I'm going to go back again, hopefully, and try a different dor a dormancy procedure on it because in my business, we have a saying, if I can make it instant coffee 
where you can plant it and it comes up, you're going to buy it. If you have to wait two years, I'll never see you again. And so we are on the edge or the cusp of breaking dormancy in natives now. And it's just beginning to start. We're working on about three plants right now. And as we go down the list, we're going to more and more because there's a lot of good plants out there that only come up when conditions are right. And we're trying to remember that butter commercial, don't fool mother nature. Right. We're trying to fool the fool, we're trying to fool mother nature to where when you throw something out, it grows. Right. And so that's the next evolution of seed. The final frontier where no man has gone before is for you Star Trek fans out there. Again, Darcy, we appreciate you uh, taking some time with us. And I, I know his uh, knowledge of the subject of seeds and agronomy is, is apparent, is uh, palpable, even over the, the radio like this. So uh, we look forward to continuing to working with you. I want to give a shout out to Turner Seed Company. They provide all the seeds uh, that we use at the uh, Quail Research Ranch out in uh, Fisher County. We've, we we appreciate that. And uh, if you ever want to come out and see what we've got going out there, pick a wetter year than this one and come on, and we'll be glad <laughs> to have you. Uh, Gary, with uh, we've had a great discussion here. Might have went a little bit over time, but uh, I think the listeners will be interested in this. And, Darcy, some point in time, I'd like to come back with you and talk about a whole other chapter, and that'd be reseeding native rangelands and the perennials and some of those kind of things, but we don't have time today. So, Gary, we'll turn it back to you and look forward to visiting with you all next month. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Dale. Great program and insights this month. And special thanks to our guest, Darcy Turner of Turner Seed. For more information, go to turnerseed.com. If you'd like more details from the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, including past episodes of Dr. Dale on Quail, go to quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for joining us this month. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.